Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our online audiences and our live stream audiences and all those who will watch our video later. This is one of many online programs at the Commonwealth Club, which we've been doing since the COVID-19 crisis shut down our facilities and everyone else's. And uh, I'd like to welcome tonight the authors of The Religion Clauses, The Case for the Separation of Church and State, Erwin Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman, both legal scholars well-known and uh, dean of the uh, you know, UC Berkeley uh, Law School and uh, at Irvine uh, Chancellor, right? So, uh, gentlemen, uh, first of all, in your book, you talk about there's there's three basic approaches to the religion clauses, and, and we'll, we'll go into that detail later. But one of those viewpoints is a separatist, and that's the, the, the way that you've looked at it. Um, you state in the book that two of the main ones, and in fact, the one who wrote the most about it, was Justice Ginsburg, who has just passed away. So I thought maybe you could say a little bit about that. It's uh, unfortunately very timely to talk about her. Howard, you want to start? Yeah, uh, Justice Ginsburg... Um made so many contributions to our understanding of the Constitution, uh, and her life's work is associated with so much progress uh, on issues that we now uh, are grateful that uh, we we take for granted. She's normally associated with um, focusing on uh, women's rights, but she was, had very clear understandings of what the relationship between uh, the government and religion should be. And to that extent, you know, her upbringing uh, as a Jewish woman who had seen uh, what it looks like uh, for people of non-majority faiths uh, to be treated um, with animus or in a marginalized way, deeply mm-hmm. informed her understanding of the importance, first, of making sure that there was no privileged religion uh, in the political system, that the government was not associated too strongly with uh, a particular sect. If that happens, it, it makes everyone else feel as though they're not part of the same uh, government, and uh, and so to and that voice is was such an important voice on the court, and um, you know just as Thurgood Marshall had a unique set of experiences that helped his colleagues understand his life experience was so different than theirs, you know it is a tremendous loss that um, her life experience and her point of view is no longer on the court. You know, I think it's really point, important to point out because we're going for more diversity and, uh, and that has had an impact. People don't realize all the time that's had a big impact on the way people think. And you quote in your book, Justice O'Connor, talking about just this issue and about insiders and outsiders. Now, this was about religion, but it's also equally true for men and women. Uh, if the women are outsiders, it's, it's going to be the same situation. So that's a great point. Um, Erwin? In 1947, all nine justices on the court believed that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment was best understood through a metaphor coined by Thomas Jefferson, the issue of walls separating church and state. All nine justices that were on the court then said, to be a wall that's high and impregnable. Over the years since, and especially with the Supreme Court appointments in the 1980s and since, we've gone from having unanimity of that to now really having just one justice left who takes that position. That's a dramatic change, and it explains why we're seeing such radical change in the law with regard to the religion clauses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and we take this for granted. It's a it's an important thing. Uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was uh, 
why was the religion clause the absolute first sentence of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights? Why? Because it, it's, the, it's more than before freedom of speech. I don't know if it's more important, but it's the first thing that was said. And there's a history behind that. Um, and there's a history behind the clause, too, which we don't really deal with too much anymore because the issues are gone. But it's still an interesting history. And you go into it in your book. So, um, Erwin, would you like to talk a little bit about that history? Sure. The framers of the Constitution saw what religious strife led to in foreign countries. They were well aware of how when government became aligned with religion, there was coercion to participate in that religion. There was repression of those who were of other religions. They wanted to replace that with a government that was secular. They believed that they were the product of the Enlightenment, where reason had based, replaced religion as the primary grounds for decision. You ask, why does the First Amendment begin that way? We don't have a definitive answer. My answer has always been, if you look at the structure of the First Amendment, it begins with how we form our thoughts, our conscience. Then it goes on to our ability to express those thoughts, our speech. And then it goes on to the ability to communicate those thoughts via freedom of the press or to gather with others to communicate those thoughts via assembly. So I think there's a logical progression to how James Madison wrote the First Amendment. Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, insight. Uh, the other part about it is um, the establishment of religion. I think what a lot of people don't realize, I mean, the, the language is very precise. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, there's two things. They didn't want to establish a national religion, but there were established religions in the colonies. Which you, which you bring out, which I think was interesting. And some of them were still in place. So I'm sure those colonies did not want the federal government to, to disestablish their state religions. Was that an issue at all? The ent- all, of the, uh, uh, all of the evidence from the beginning of the colonial period until the founding of the Constitution is that there was tremendous momentum toward moving away from what had been long time assumed uh, as an essential part of uh, building a political system, which is that the government was strongly associated with a religion and part of its job was to require the people to conform. That really began to break down. There was 150 years of tremendous strife in the history of the people who uh, came to North America. Uh, and by the time you got to the writing of the Constitution, especially during the 1780s, major breakthroughs in the thinking about uh, how inconsistent with liberty an established government would be, but how important rights of free, uh, uh, rights of conscience should be. And so even in the constitution, the original constitution before the first amendment, there's no mention of a deity. Uh, it's, there are explicit prohibitions against religious tests for office. Uh, and of course, no power given to Congress uh, to regulate religion at all. So the very First Amendment, the, the first part of the First Amendment, underscores one of the most important lessons that they had learned, really, over the previous few decades. And to underscore that this is not a Congress that is going to get involved in religion, but people are still free in their own personal circumstance to practice their faith as they wish. Um, and most of the states that started with a religious establishment during uh, the declaration, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, every state, every colony had an established religion. By the time you get to um, uh, the creation of the Constitution, 
uh, most of them had given up on those establishments and the others would fall away very quickly. So the momentum was in the direction of a secular government, but individuals having uh, personal freedom uh, to worship as they please. You make a great distinction between the American Revolution and the French Revolution in that the French Revolution was secular but wanted to get rid of religion, basically one religion, the Catholic religion, and that in America there was actually the idea was to improve the situation for religions and the freedom of religion by secularizing the federal government and staying out of religion. And in fact, the, the disestablishment uh, movement was primarily designed to ensure the blossoming of uh, personal religious freedom. Most people who were advocating on behalf of wanting the freedom to pray and worship as they wished, most of what they wanted was for government to disestablish its associations from particular religious sects. So freedom of religion was part of this disestablishment uh, move. And you know, we, we think of it as both uh, a secular government uh, with religious tolerance for religious freedom, but this model of disestablishment plus free exercise, what, what was most distinctive about the creation of the American Republic and very different than what happened in France, where there was a strong effort to quote unquote de-Christianize uh, the, the entire political system. Uh, for the baby boomers that are listening, uh, who, who uh, always knew that anti-disestablishmentarianism was the longest uh, word in the English language, it's, you know, it, it is an ism just like uh, communism, socialism, uh, capitalism. And there was the disestablishmentarianisms and there was the anti-disestablishmentarianisms. And thank you for your book in, in making that clear to me. I, I, I loved, I loved uh, you know, getting a nice background for that word. So, Erwin, <clears throat> the, the, the uh, language of the, the, the two clauses, all in one sentence that we talk about, we talk about the establishment clause, which we've mentioned a little bit, and the free exercise clause. Maybe you could just read the words, because they're very simple, um, and have spent, uh, people have spent a lot of time on them ever since, which we're going to talk about. So, you want me to read the exact words of the Constitution? I think I can do it by heart, but to read the exact words of the Constitution without taking a chance, it specifically says, um, Congress shall make no law respecting an established religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Yeah. So we have the, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, um, before we get into those details, uh, another thing that's going on right now, um, you start your chapter four. Uh, with this sentence, which I'm going to read, um, because you've talked about all the different cases that came up uh, on free exercise and everything. And uh, you say, very few contemporary debates include governments shutting down services, banning prayer groups, or prohibiting celebrations of religious holidays. So in the last six months, uh, the government has done that uh, on many occasions across the country. Governors have done it. Other people have done it. And uh, one can anticipate that this is going to reach the Supreme Court. Um, and I, uh, there, there's these two points of view, the accommodation and the separatist. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't ask either of you to become an accommodationist, but someone should take their argument <laughs> and, and say, what is, it, what is it that you expect to happen when, when these, because there's a lot of people very, very upset, especially when they say, you allow this kind of event, you, you allow a protest, but you don't allow us to get together for church. So uh, you're making a choice against religion, basically. Yeah. The Supreme Court in 1990 said, that there's no basis for an exception from a general law on account of religious beliefs. There was a case that involved a law uh, that prohibited consumption of peyote, hallucinogenic substance. And Native Americans wanted an exception to it for religious rituals. 
And the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Antonin Scalia, said, this is a general law. We don't create on the base of the Constitution exceptions to it. Well, I think the same thing applies with regard to shelter-in-place orders. So long as it's a general order of the governor, religion doesn't get an exception from it. And in fact, twice already, the Supreme Court has said that. There was a case, South Bay Pentecostal Church versus Newsom, that involved Governor Gavin Newsom imposing closure orders, shelter in place. And it didn't keep religion from meeting. He just said, you can't have more than 25% of the capacity of the church, the synagogue, the mosque, or more than 100 people, similar to the kind of restrictions that were imposed on businesses and other gatherings. And the Supreme Court, five to four, said that that was permissible. There was no majority opinion because the procedural posture of the case. But Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion in which he said that this is a general rule. Religion is not treated any differently or any worse than anybody else. There's no exception for religion. And then there was a case coming out of Nevada, the Calvary Dayton versus Sisolak case. There was a challenge to the governor of Nevada's order. And again, the court ruled five to four that religion didn't get a special exception. What Howard and I argue in this book is that's the appropriate approach, that there shouldn't be exceptions to general laws from religion. And that's why I agree with what the Supreme Court did in these two recent cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, during the prohibition, you mentioned um, that there were exceptions for the use of sacramental wine. So, uh, and, and how was that distinguished from the use of peyote? I mean, you, you, you mentioned it, Howard, in the, in the book. So... Uh, is that a is that a logical argument or is that a cultural argument that, that they're different? Well, there's two different legal questions. So one legal question is when um, when government regulates something, uh, can it choose under certain circumstances to exempt certain populations of people from the regulation? Um, and uh, so if you're going to uh, start focusing on prohibition of liquor. Do, does the government have the authority also to say, except in these circumstances? Mm-hmm. Um, th- this happens uh, routinely. So, for example, under the Affordable Care Act, um, and we'll, I think, talk about some of the cases af- around that, but under the Affordable Care Act, the, one of the goals of the act was to ensure that uh, employers would provide their employees a full range of health care benefits, including uh, women's health benefits and preventive health benefits, such as contraception. But within the act, there was an exception made for religious institutions so that you didn't require the Catholic diocese uh, to offer insurance to their employees. Um, mm-hmm. And so so can can Congress, can state legislatures provide some exemptions to certain laws? That That we think is um, a, a matter of state policy most of the time and it, not deeply problematic. The, the real issue that we're looking at is whether if the policymaker, if the legislature chooses not to provide an exemption, does the Constitution's free exercise clause require that exemption? And on mm-hmm. that front, we think if the law is a general law and it is intended to apply to everyone, then uh, the best understanding of the free exercise clause is that um, religious practitioners, 
people with religious points of view should not have a special place in the political system to disagree with the law and therefore not have to obey it when everybody else uh, is treated uh, equally. Well, that's a really good distinction. And I, I know that, well, we're all lawyers, but you know, people aren't used to those kind of uh, distinctions being very important, but it's an important uh, point that if the government decides the exemption is part of the general law, then it's a different story than if they don't. Um, you know, one thing from a logic point of view, you would say, well, you know, we allow all the different religions to discriminate on the basis of their religion in hiring their ministers and hiring their leaders. And so, I mean, it's, it's a Im total impracticality to do otherwise, or, and, and, and you would have the government getting involved in, you know, uh, Catholics can't say that they can only have male priests. They also have to have female priests, the same thing with Orthodox Jews and so on. It's, it's obviously something the government doesn't want anything to do with and, and probably why they do their exemptions. But, but what you're saying is if that exemption's written in, then that's part of the general law. And, and just to underscore, because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about circumstances under which we don't think religious mm -hmm. practitioners should get special treatment. But, but part of our understanding and the argument in the book of what it means to have the ability freely to practice your religion is that when it comes to specific matters of church practice, mosque practice, synagogue practice, um, you know, who, who is allowed to be a member of the congregation, what the articles of faith are, and the like, really the core elements of worship and faith, that the government can have no role uh, mm -hmm. in that. You can't, you can't require the government coming in and telling uh, a Catholic diocese who, who is going to be leading that congregation would, would violate both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. So our discussions occur outside of that narrow frame when simply religious practitioners are existing generally in society, running businesses, employing people of different faiths. And under those circumstances, we think that the, um, the principles are different. We're, we're asking the government not to behave like Henry VIII, right? Basically. We're asking the government not to behave like Henry VIII. That's a, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so Erwin, how about if you uh, lay out for uh, everyone the three basic ideas or, or approaches that you guys uh, lay out in your book, because I think that's a good way to get started on, on how we think about this thing. Sure. This concerns what's an impermissible establishment of religion. And if you look at the Supreme Court over the last 60 years, three different positions have been taken. One we've already talked about, the strict separation position. The idea of this is, as much as possible, we should separate church and state the greatest degree possible, religion should be for the private realm, and our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, but our government should be secular. This takes its inspiration from the words I quoted earlier, Thomas Jefferson, there should be a wall that separates church and state. And if you start the story in 1947 for the relatively modern era, that was a time when all nine justices believed in this. Mm. At the other end of the spectrum, there's what we call the accommodationist position. In this view says, the government violates the Establishment Clause only if it coerces religious participation or if it's giving benefits if it discriminates among religions. But relatively little would violate the Establishment Clause. Under this approach, religious symbols on government property, like nativity scenes, are always fine because they don't coerce anyone to participate in religion. Prayer at government events, fine because it doesn't coerce religious participation. And we now have 
five justices on the court who take this position, and I think we're soon going to have a sixth. And then there's a middle position that says, what we really want the government to be is neutral with regard to religion. We don't want the government to do anything that has the effect of advancing or inhibiting religion. Mm-hmm. And those who took this approach would say, the key question is, is the government endorsing religion in what it's doing? Let me quickly take a simple example to show why the theories matter. Let's talk about a nativity scene on government property, where you can make a menorah on government property. The strict separationist would say, no, the nativity scene, the menorah just doesn't belong on government property. Mm-hmm. Somebody should put it on their own lawn, a business can put it on its property, but not on government property. Those who would take the accommodationist approach would say, a religious symbol on government property is fine because it's not coercing anyone to participate in religion. Doesn't matter how prominent it is, doesn't matter that it's just from one religion. And then the middle one would say, well, is this particular symbol an endorsement of religion? What other symbols are there? How would the reasonable observer perceive this? Mm -hmm. Well, for a time, the justices were split enough that the middle position, that neutrality position, was the one that decided outcomes. But now, as I say, we have a majority that takes the accommodationist approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the accommodationists uh, on the increase, um, what do you expect to shift in, in, in the rules? I mean, there are a lot of people who for a long time have been upset about this idea of taking down the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, I mean, the one judge that resisted, you know, to the loss of his job and so on and so forth and and uh, crosses have there ever been any cases about like the the uh, the cemeteries for the soldiers where they use crosses and they use uh, you know starve david and and there's some a, a muslim scene has anybody ever gotten upset about that uh, from a legal point of view is there anything like that is there how yeah but uh Monuments and symbols on government property are things that we've been arguing about now for uh, a while. The court, for a long time, never got involved in these questions. Uh, it wasn't really until um, uh, the late 1940s uh, that the justices uh, indicated that the Establishment Clause applies both to the federal government and to the states, and that created an opportunity for uh, federal courts to start looking more closely at these uh, distinctions. It's one of the reasons why you know, federal courts and the Supreme Court especially didn't get involved in the issue of Christian prayers in public schools mm-hmm. uh, until very late, until the early 1960s, uh, simply because that wasn't a matter of any supervision from uh, federal court. So for a long time, it was it was open territory. And we know that there was a Protestant establishment in the country. There was a lot of religious bigotry in the country, uh, and, but the courts simply were not trying to figure out what, what's allowable and what's not allowable until relatively recently, until the mid uh, 20th century. So now you have cases where if you have a nativity scene all by itself, um, at least as of, uh, you know, 1989, when this case was heard, that seemed a little bit too much like the government is associating itself with a particular religion. But if you had a nativity scene, plus a menorah, plus a statement of toleration of all religious faiths, You know, maybe some of the justices in the middle would think differently about it. What we've seen over the last few years, though, is I think as a result of what Erwin correctly said, where 
is a conservative majority on the court that doesn't believe you have to think hard uh, and make these distinctions is that a number of cases where you have, for example, townships that start every monthly legislative session with a Christian prayer uh, for years uh, and that being challenged as the government associating it itself with a particular religion, it would be obvious to anyone that that was true if, for example, you know, it was a Muslim prayer every single uh, month for a year or a Jewish prayer. Um, but the court found uh, seven to two uh, that that was acceptable because there was no real coercion of the population. There was only uh, affiliation. You, you have a case last year where a very large cross, 40 foot large cross um, on a busy intersection in Prince George's County in Maryland. Uh, as a way of honoring the war dead was challenged on the grounds that why is it the case that the government is honoring war dead with a, mm. with a cross? Uh, do, doesn't that associate the government with one particular faith approach uh, to the sanctity of life and others? Mm. Uh, but again, uh, the conservative uh, majority on the court said that's still okay. So we, we've gone from a period where the justices in the 60s, 70s, and 80s we're trying to make some distinctions that people could disagree with, but they were at least working at it to a point now where we think um, that the, the floodgates have opened up or to extend the wall metaphor, you know, mm -hmm. the, the wall is, the wall has, uh, is tumbling down. So uh, with this Berlin wall tumbling down, um, are we going to get school prayer back in, in the schools? Do you think that that's on the horizon? Yes and no. I think that the court's going to allow more religious presence in schools as well as all government activities. So I think when it comes to issues like student-delivered prayers at public school graduations, the Supreme Court is going to say that's fine. Mm -hmm. I think when it's about allowing student prayer groups to meet on school premises, that's going to be fine. I don't know that the Supreme Court's going to overturn the decisions in the 1960s that said that there can't be official voluntary prayer in schools. Those mm. cases go back to 1962. But given how conservative the court is becoming, and given that conservatives are willing to approve much more religious presence, including in schools, it's sure, it's sure possible. And as, um, as Irwin has pointed out, the, so there are five justices for whom the standard of what violates the religion clause is so strict that it's hard to imagine uh, what, what might um, violate it. Um, but they still say, for example, you can't coerce people. And it's imaginable that some of them who still think you can't coerce people might say, if you start every single school day with a government written prayer, that that at least for that school population feels like a lot of coercion. Some of us remember growing up uh, Jewish in places where uh, you would start the day uh, with a recognition of Christian uh, prayer or um, uh, holidays and and feeling as if uh, that meant that we weren't part of the same um, the same country as everyone else. So but there are two justices, uh, certainly Justice Thomas, uh, who have a view that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment does not apply at all to states mm -hmm. and local governments. And so from his point of view, and maybe he has one additional justice who would share that point of view, um, uh, that would mean that states would be completely free 
uh, from their point of view. I'm not sure that you're going to the conservatives will go that far, but the fact that there are a few justices on the court who now feel comfortable with that point of view is a tremendous departure from the entire history of jurisprudence since the Supreme Court started addressing these issues. Well, I'm going to uh, ask you one thing to think about uh, while I'm going to then ask some questions that have come in for us because they're right on the point you're discussing. But uh, do we know the religious affiliation of the eight justices that are, are remaining on the court? I mean, is there is there a stronger religious affiliation than before? Um, that that's that's one thing. Um, and I'll go ahead if you if you know the answer. To I that. can answer to that question. Yeah. Um, Roberts is Catholic. Thomas is Catholic. Alito is Catholic. Gorsuch was raised Catholic, but is Episcopalian. Kavanaugh is Catholic. Breyer is Jewish. Kagan is Jewish, and the two names most mentioned for the vacancy, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Goa, are both Catholic. Wow. Okay. What happened to the Protestants? (laughs) I actually, if you want my speculation, I'll I'll tell you why I think it is this way. Uh Uh-huh. Abortion has become such a crucial issue for Republicans over the last several decades. And judicial nominations become very important to Republicans, even more than for Democrats. And Mm -hmm. I think that one way in which the Republicans have been able to satisfy the strong anti-abortion forces in their party is by appointing Catholic justices who we have every reason to believe will be anti-abortion. That's a great lead into one of my questions. Roe v. Wade was uh, decided on the basis of privacy issues from Griswold. Why haven't there, why was there, or maybe there were, arguments either based on the Establishment Clause or on the free exercise thereof clause? Because you could make arguments in favor and against abortion from both of those sides. So, but the Religion Clause has not affected the arguments, as far as I know. So am I, am I wrong? You don't bring it up in your book. So I know that, that I, I agree that that's probably the issue why we have so many Catholic justices. Um, but... Howard, have you, have you got a background on the arguments? So, or? so the way, so as you, as you noted, the way the jurisprudence was developing, uh, if, if you were in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, a litigator who was trying to establish this right, you needed to see what the best channel would be given mm-hmm. where the court was. And the court had spoken so strongly uh, just years earlier about a woman's, uh, about rights to have access to contraception, uh, mm-hmm. a certain aspect of bodily integrity. Uh, certain notions of uh, individual privacy and autonomy in the Griswold case and other cases, that the fact that you could theoretically make an argument that anti-abortion might be premised on a set of religious doctrines that the government shouldn't embrace, you could any law professor could make that argument, but whether that was going to be the most persuasive argument at the time, I think I, I think it, they showed that they actually figured out the better argument. The, the, the bigger question and what what Justice Ginsburg uh, always reflected on was that um, is that there's a stronger there, there's also a strong equal protection argument uh, for uh, the protection of abortion rights on the grounds that women uh, can't really be uh, have equal civil rights in the country uh, if um, they are prohibited from controlling their own reproduction. But but I don't know any litigator who thought about going to the Supreme Court. Erwin uh, might uh, correct me. Uh, who mm-hmm. really tried successfully to make uh, the Establishment Clause argument. Let me try to explain why. Mm-hmm. The argument would have to be that the laws prohibiting abortion are ultimately based on a religious perspective. 
mm-hmm. but so can many laws that exist be tied to a religious perspective. Like murder. And in answer to Howard's yeah. question, Larry Tribe, a very prominent constitutional law professor at Harvard, initially tried to defend Roe versus Wade as, well, otherwise it's the government establishing religion by putting forward a religious view on abortion. And then he recanted that and said, you know, I don't think that works because how are we going to separate this law from so many others that can be tied back to even what was in the Ten Commandments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting that the argument is made, and it's certainly useful because um, as we get more and more um, diverse, I mean, there's different sects in Hinduism which go both ways based on reincarnation on the abortion issue, and there's, you know, you, you can just multiply that out. You'd probably have 20 different religious viewpoints, all of which have subtle variations on how they would deal with abortion. Uh, it would, as you say in your book, some things are just impossible to deal with. Uh, as as a legislature that's trying to be secular, and and that would certainly be one of them. And it's proved that way. So so we all know why it's being done, and it's all being done based on other arguments because those were the ones that worked, right? Basically. Um, so, um, do you think that the accommodationists uh, will will um, in trying to do something about Roe v. Wade will use a religious argument or or not? You don't think so. I have okay. no doubt there are going to be five votes to overrule Roe v. Wade with the change in the court. I've always thought that Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh would vote to overrule Roe. And I believe the new justice, we'll see who it is, is likely to do so. I didn't think Roberts was necessarily willing to overrule Roe. They'd allow it to be chipped away. But the effect of Ginsburg being replaced by somebody very conservative is Roberts is no longer the swing justice. His vote mm-hmm. is no longer crucial here. But I don't think it's going to be in terms of religion. I think what the Supreme Court is going to say is the Constitution is silent about abortion. Roe v. Wade was wrong in taking this away from the states. Roe v. Wade is overruled. That's what conservatives have wanted for decades, and now they'll have the votes. Now, if you want, uh, to, just, hypothesize, are, if you want hmm? to hypothesize about other possibilities, so this is the argument that has been made ever since critics of Roe began to mobilize their arguments, and so over so many decades uh, that that's been the path. So I think it's right. The Constitution is silent about it. Therefore, it's up to the states. You could imagine, um, I don't think in a realistic way, but just in a, in a you know, uh, thinking about uh, the issue, you, you could imagine a court with a deeply Catholic sensibility saying that um, the Constitution, the Constitution prohibits abortion because mm-hmm. the Constitution adopts a Catholic conception of when human life with all of its rights and privileges begins. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, to, you could run that uh, thought experiment, but I don't think there's a realistic chance that um, uh, you're actually going to see that kind of argument uh, in the years to come. Yeah, if they can get there, there another way, they're, they're going to get there another way. Um, but uh, it's... it's <clears throat> It's an interesting thing, and it, you, you pointed out something I think that's also uh, really important for people who aren't uh, thoroughly uh, immersed in the argument, uh, that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, what will happen is that every it'll go back to the states and that every state has its own rules on this. A lot of people think that's it for abortion, but that's not the way it works, right? You want to explain that, Erwin? Um, sure. I think what the Supreme Court will say, as I indicated, is that the Constitution, to regard it as silent about abortion, in each state should be able to decide for itself. What we know is that many states already have laws on the books that they've said will go into effect if Roe is overruled. 
Others will adopt laws prohibiting all abortion. In fact, some states like Alabama have done it anyway. States like Iowa and Ohio have adopted laws saying no abortions once the fetal heartbeat detected, which is the sixth week of pregnancy, which basically prohibits all abortions. But then there'll be states like California, New York, and Illinois where abortion is allowed. For women who have resources, they'll travel to those states where abortion is allowed to get abortions. Before New York became the first state in this country to legalize abortion, abortion was legal in England. 25% of all the abortions in England were performed on American women. It wasn't mm. poor women who were going to England for abortions. Right. So what really will happen is poor women and especially teenagers will be left to the choice of an unwanted pregnancy or an unsafe back alley abortion. Women who have resources will be able to go to a place where abortion is legal, like California. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, that's been an argument all along uh, in favor of Roe. So we have lots of questions already in, and, I'll, 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 and they're mostly about what we're talking about. So I'm going to go through those before we, we move on. One came in from Gary Landsman. Um, says, you're focused on the Constitution. Can we comment on the conflicts between federal and state constitutions regarding religion? Okay, so now we, we, we discussed several things about the conflict. But is there any... Direct. I mean, now that there are no established uh, religions uh, and any, there, I assume there are none left, right? Now, now that no state has an established religion, um, yeah, for a couple hundred years we've we've had that. So, um, but are there other religious rules in the different states, for example, the southern states, that that are in conflict with the general separate church and state idea for the federal level? Well, let me mention one very interesting conflict that just emerged uh, this last year in one of the court's opinions. Uh, so the court uh, this last year handed down an opinion in uh, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Long story short, in Montana's state constitution, there was a very strong no aid to religion clause. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of the understanding of the establishment clause, part of the debates during the founding generation wasn't just you know, whether or not you had an officially established religion, but could you tax people and then use tax dollars and give it to religious establishments? And a number of states passed these uh, strict no aid clauses. Uh, So Montana created a tax funded scholarship program to allow people a certain amount of school choice. And these tax funded scholarships, they allowed people to use them to go to secular schools, but not to go to religious schools. And so that issue eventually went up to the Montana Supreme Court. And one of the solutions that they imposed was to say, you know, we, if, if the federal courts don't like that, it's not going uh, also to religious schools, then we'll, we'll simply eliminate the program because the state constitution uh, prohibits us uh, from right. giving uh, tax to, taxpayer dollars to uh, uh, religious schools. The U.S. Supreme Court, in the case decided at the end of the term, said that's not permissible you are required to give funds to religious schools if similar funds are available to other schools. So Mm -hmm. the interesting now conflict that has emerged is that Montana's anti-establishment clause Mm -hmm. is now no longer operable because of the federal government's free exercise clause as interpreted by uh, the conservative justices. Wow. 
It, does anybody ever make the argument that that by not taxing uh, nonprofits and religious institutions, that that's you know just a different way of allowing tax dollars to go to them because it's it, it's the same thing. They they're going to get services and don't contribute uh, the way other institutions do. So that's an unequal treatment. The Supreme Court has upheld tax exemptions, say, for religious property. But I think if religion is required to be given the same benefits as secular institutions, it's hard to justify why they don't have to pay the same taxes as secular institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a logical point of view, but so far there, that, that hasn't, you know, that, that was accepted by the Supreme Court, you said. So, yeah, but doesn't sound logical. Not the first time. (laughs) Okay, uh, next question is from Ellen Wheeler. Uh, What about people who feel excluded or unwelcome when religious symbols are on public property? They are not coerced, but can feel like there's something wrong with them. You you, you mentioned that earlier, Howard, with your example, but um, that's an argument that's used, right? This, I think, goes to what Justice O'Connor said, that the Establishment Clause about making sure that no one feels like an outsider relative to their own government. And I think the problem with putting a nativity scene prominently on government property is it makes those of non-Christian faiths feel like outsiders. One of the cases that we discuss in the book, I think a fairly famous case about the Establishment Clause, was Van Orden versus Perry from 2005. It involves a six-foot-high, three-foot-wide Ten Commandments monument that sits directly at the corner from Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. I argued that case on behalf of the challenger, Thomas Van Orden, saying to put a religious symbol at the seat of Texas state government violates the Establishment Clause. At one point at oral argument, Justice Kennedy said to me, with real hostility in his voice, if your client doesn't like the Ten Commandments monument, why doesn't he just look the other way? And I answered by saying, we don't excuse constitutional violations by ignoring them. Mm-hmm. And also there'd be no stopping point. We could put a large cross atop City Hall and say, if you don't like it, look the other way. Mm. I lost that case five to four. And Mm. I worry that what the majority of the current court would say is, if you don't like the religious symbol, if it makes you uncomfortable, don't look at it. But we, the court, aren't going to say it violates the Establishment Clause. And there's another. If you don't like the swastika, don't look at it, right? Symbols are, they're considered important by the people who want the symbols, right? right? Uh, And so you shouldn't diminish their importance uh, when people object. The the question underscores another very important point in this debate. So if we say that when you have a sectarian religious symbol on government property, it makes people feel uh, marginalized within their own political system in a way that's, from our point of view, obviously inconsistent with the First Amendment. There are some who who argue that that really is demonstrating a hostility to religion. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting to try to untangle that argument. You know, from our point of view, it's demonstrating tremendous respect for the great religious diversity of this Mm -hmm. country, that it shows respect to all of those religious traditions that maybe aren't captured uh, by that one uh, favored uh, symbol. And so for someone to say that it suggests hostility means I think it means there are some people who believe they're entitled to have a special religious position within the political system. And sometimes Mm -hmm. if you've had that special place for a long time, when you lose it, it can feel like a loss and that loss can feel like hostility. 
But from our point of view, it's really just about treating all religious practitioners equally and making sure that they all have equal faith that the government respects their traditions as much as it respects others. But you didn't use the word religious privilege. I mean, you could you could make just that argument, just like white privilege and so on, that that you know certain groups, and and given our our history of almost all human institutions, almost always the government did give that right to somebody or another, and that was the in group versus the out group. Um, and it, you're, you're, you, I, we won't go into them in detail because it was nice nicely detailed in the book for those who want to uh, read it uh, on that issue. Both both your argument about how this is not hostile to religion. But also during that time when the neutral uh, judges were involved, you know, it, it's almost as if a nativity scene uh, that had a little sign saying this is the birth of a nice Jewish boy, um, you know, would would overcome the, the, the problem by having just a little bit more uh, balance. Um, but obviously you, you make really good points that 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 really doesn't take care of the whole problem. So uh, let's go to another question from Gary Landsman. Regarding Gilman's point on opening prayers at public meetings, has the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance been ever challenged legally? Uh, and, and maybe tell the history of it too, because it's not as old as people think. In 1954, Congress added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. It's very much about, according to the legislative history, while the country was fighting godless communism, we mm. should say one nation under God. There was a lawsuit that was brought by a man by the name of Michael Newdow in Northern California, the Elk Grove Unified School District, on behalf of his daughter, arguing that the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools violates the Establishment Clause. And the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said, there's no secular purpose for the words under God. They're inherently religious. Students feel pressure to say the words under God that's coercion. In fact, I remember when my daughter was in kindergarten at a Los Angeles public school, she came home one day and demonstrated to her mom and me how she could recite all the words of the Pledge of Allegiance. And my wife said, I thought the Ninth Circuit said there's not supposed to be under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. My five-year-old daughter overheard this and said, oh, you have to say it or you get sent to the principal's office. Now, that's not what the no. teacher said, but that's no. what a kindergartner perceived right at the beginning of school. Yeah. The case went to the Supreme Court, and it was in 2004, and the Supreme Court said that Michael Newdow lacked standing, lacked the ability to come to court to challenge the words under God, because he didn't have legal custody of his daughter. The mom who had legal custody didn't want the case to go forward. So the Supreme Court ducked the issue. It then yeah. went back, and in another case, someone challenged under God, and the Ninth Circuit two to one said that under God doesn't violate the Establishment Clause, and the Supreme Court didn't grant review. Wow, the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. That's that's the that's one the Federal Court of Appeals around the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. If the West Coast isn't going to go for it, might as well not send it to the Supreme Court. Um, here's a question from Walter Kennedy: Will the federal or state governments have to allow atheism holiday exhibits? Are there any atheism holidays? Uh, we didn't. We didn't. He didn't. Walter didn't suggest any. You know, we're, we're looking for all the examples of the. Uh, widely agreed upon atheist holiday monuments. Um, I guess we'll have to wait until then. The, the, from our point of view, look, the general point is we, we don't want the government participating. We believe that a best reading of the First Amendment is that the government shouldn't be an active uh, player in religion. It's designed not just to be neutral in relationship to other religions, but clearly it was designed to be a secular government. And 
and if you if you just think that matters of faith and worship belong under the constitution to individuals in their personal private capacity what allows that to happen is that the government itself doesn't think of itself as a religious player in that game then we think that's that's the right balance that's the balance that we think is most consistent with religious liberty and what has made it possible for this country to be the most religious country uh, uh, among all Western uh, democracies. It's been a benefit to religion. That's your argument. I think it's a great argument. Certainly the, the statistics are in favor of your conclusion. Uh, here's a very interesting question. I don't know if you want to go there, but um, it sounds to, to this person as if it's a separate but equal that you're, you're for separation, but, but treating the religions all equally, but to keep them separate from uh, the government. In the case of separate but equal has a history in racial laws. Um, is there any comparison uh, that we can learn between the two? Separate but equal justifiably has a very negative connotation. And mm -hmm. I would resist that what we're calling for is separate but equal. What mm -hmm. we're saying is that with regard to the establishment clause, the government should be secular to the greatest extent possible, that the place for religion is in our churches, our homes, our synagogues, our daily lives, not the government. And that's what Howard was just describing. And our position with regard to the free exercise clause is that there shouldn't be exceptions for religion from general laws. I wouldn't characterize this as separate but equal. I would characterize it as a separationist approach. Maybe a better analogy would be uh, that the government is there to create a level playing field for religions, the way that, uh, that they're supposed to create a level playing field for the economy, for, for economic activity, that you're, you're, you're not supposed to try to tilt, tilt it one way or another. But of course, as you point out in your book, um, it's sort of irresistible for, for different groups to want to keep tilting it. Um, that's both economically and religiously. And I, I think your book makes a really good argument for why we really don't want to get into that in a secular democratic society. That's, that's what we're trying to get away from um, by, by having a secular democratic society. From Alan Crockett, how about when laws are passed outlawing things some religions allow, like birth control, eating meat on Friday, and abortion we've already covered. So um, if, if a law outlaws something that other religions allow, how does that fit in? I mean, obviously, uh, other religions or religions can allow almost anything. Uh, there, there could be a religion that allow, I mean, they, like, like the cannabis uh, rules. I mean, there's a religion that allows cannabis. Now cannabis is, is legal in a lot of places, but before when it wasn't, people try to use that as a, an argument. Go ahead, Howard. You can. So, so you, you've heard our general approach to the free exercise clause. If the government is passing a general law and it's not trying to target a religion or demonstrating religious animus towards someone, it's simply regulating in the public interest, then everyone should be obligated to follow that. Uh, and religious practitioners don't have any special right to say it applies to everyone except for us. One of the reasons is the government regulates on so many different topics. And there are so many different religious convictions in this country that if every single time a government regulated something and a religious person of any background thought that that regulation was inconsistent with their beliefs, you would have every single government policy challenged all the time. And it wouldn't really be possible for us to engage in self-government uh, as a, a civic community 
if everyone was asking for their exceptions. Moreover, if, if you invited the courts to give some people exceptions, then you're embroiling the courts in this impossible challenge of figuring out which religious practitioners and, and who have faith uh, claims that are worthy of us giving you an exception and which ones don't. And in the history of the court attempting to do this kind of work, it won't be a surprise to, to hear that the justice's sympathies are almost always with mm-hmm. powerful Christian religious sects. And when the, when the justices have been dismissive of claims, it's always been claims of Native American communities, other sorts of communities as well. So it, it, if you allow individuals to claim that their religious faith means they don't have to follow the law, you're going to end up with special favoritism. And that in and of itself seems inconsistent with the Establishment Clause. Yeah, you, you make a great argument for that in the book, because you're saying it may sound like a good idea, but the practical outcome is going to be that the favored sects that we're trying to not establish are the ones that are going to look like they're established, you know, even if they're not officially established. Just before you started giving that uh, explanation, a rhetorical question came in, which makes the same point, so we don't have to answer it, but it's from Robert Halem. There are about 4,000 identified religious, religions. Do they all get space on public property, basically? And, and here's a, a, before we go to, to a couple of the cases, here's one from Jane Gibbs, uh, which is the, one of the subtle points in the school prayer issue, which was when they said, well, we'll just have silent prayers, right? Because she said, uh, what isn't, isn't saying a prayer to oneself enough because of saying it out loud makes those not believers uncomfortable and feel different. But this has already been litigated as a silent meditation. So you want to take that, Irwin? Sure. Yeah. Alabama said it wanted every school to begin each day with a moment of silent prayer. And the Supreme Court, in a case called Wallace versus Jaffrey, said if it's called silent prayer, it's inherently religious, and so it violates the Establishment Clause. Then some states adopted laws saying, we're going to require a moment of silent reflection at the start of the school day. And some courts allowed that, some didn't, and the Supreme Court's never taken up the issue. But I also very much agree with what the question was saying and implying. Mm-hmm. Haven't students been saying silent prayers as long as teachers have been giving tests? Do we really need to institutionalize silent prayer? And there is nothing, Howard? not just before you take a test, there's nothing preventing any student who wants to start the day with a silent or not silent prayer to do so before they show up to a public school. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, one of the first cases was uh, against the Mormons, or was a case about the Mormons, because the Mormons uh, had polygamy. And uh, the arguments weren't all clear, but it was pretty obvious uh, nobody wanted to accept polygamy. So that was in 1879, I think. How did, how did that one get argued? It was on a free exercise, or was it an established? Free it was on a free exercise claim. And you know, the 19th century was a rough century for people who were not part of uh, the Protestant establishment. Uh, there was tremendous anti-Catholic uh, uh, prejudice, um, prejudice against Jews. And, um, and the Mormons, once they began to settle uh, the territories um, and initially really start to try to take control of the territories, once their practice of polygamy became uh, evident uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, the Congress responded. Uh, and criminalized uh, the practice of polygamy. Uh, so that case went to the Supreme Court, and 
the argument was, you know, th th these are my religious beliefs. This is what I have to practice based on the teachings of my religious belief. And if you prohibit it, you're preventing me from freely exercising my religion. At the time, the court uh, easily turned that down, but on the basis of a theory that, that didn't really last that long, what the court said in the late 19th century was that the free exercise clause protects matters of belief, but it doesn't protect conduct. So you're allowed mm -hmm. to believe whatever you want, but you're not allowed to engage in any behavior you want if that behavior is inconsistent with the law. Now, uh, th that's how the court thought about that when it first began. It was the very first case involving the free exercise clause. The trouble with that, of course, is that the First Amendment doesn't say that uh, Congress shall pass no law abridging the free uh, belief in things, right? No. Uh, the exercise of religion has to include something other than merely protecting someone's conscience. Uh, but once you start behaving in ways that are inconsistent with law, then uh, you get to the question of how far does your willingness to protect the exercise of religion extend, especially when the laws being passed are not designed uh, to discriminate against religious practitioners, but are merely designed to advance public policy. Right. In the case of, of, of bigamy laws, you know, they, so you could believe in polygamy, but just not exercise it. Uh, that probably wouldn't go down very well. Um, it's a, it's a good example of, of exactly where the problem was. Are there opening prayers when the Supreme Court convenes or at other times during the court schedule? No, but every court session begins with the words, God save this honorable court. Mm. Now, Justice O'Connor coined a phrase called ceremonial deism. She said things <laughs> like, God save this honorable court, in God we trust on the money, those are just ceremonial. She says, they're no big deal. A strict separationist might say, we shouldn't be doing these. But she says, it just shouldn't be a matter of the Establishment Clause. I actually think under God and the Pledge of Allegiance is different because no lawyer going before the Supreme Court ever would say, God save this honorable court. Yeah. When you pass dollar bills, remember when we used to do that? Um, we don't have to say, in God we trust out loud. I think the concern with under God and Pledge of Allegiance is kids really do feel pressure to say mm -hmm. those words. And it's just like school prayer. The government shouldn't be coercing religious participation, even through social pressure. Yeah, it's a great distinction. In case anyone hasn't noticed, it's, these are the kind of distinctions that lawyers spend their time on. Um, and and uh, they, there's, there's real uh, social public policy behind most of them. Not all of them, but behind most of them. There's a question from Roy Ulrich. Uh, please comment on Judge Reed Walker's opinion in Fire Christian Center versus Fisher from the Federal District Court in Louisville. Does anybody know that? You, you, I think you we knew? both okay. do. Okay. What, um, what was his opinion? It came down the day before Easter Sunday. And mm. the judge, without hearing from anybody but the religious group, issued an astounding opinion saying that Louisville is prohibiting Easter worship services, and this violates the Constitution and how a criminal law against worship service is something we'd never heard of before. And it was a very strongly worded, you know, over-the-top opinion. Well, it turns out he had never heard from the other side, and Louisville wasn't criminally prohibiting worship services. They weren't uh -huh. prohibiting them at all. 
It's just that there had been an encouragement of people not to gather, including in churches, but there were no sanctions there. Um, mm-hmm. I often had the sense as I read that, that Judge Walker was trying to send a message to Republicans in Congress, confirm me for the D.C. Circuit, and indeed <laughs> was confirmed for the D.C. Circuit at the beginning of June. 37 years old, ranked unqualified by the ABA to be a judge, and he's now on the Federal Court of Appeals in D.C. Oh, really? And, and it does illustrate there are many judges around this country who really want to move forward in a very strong way during, in the midst of what you know, is obviously a piece of our ongoing culture war and, and reinsert religion into government practice and decry any effort to prevent people from practicing their religion uh, the way that they want. And one of the reasons we wrote the book is that this is becoming, this is obviously becoming a very important issue. I mean, we, we now have courts contemplating uh, situations where business owners uh, who have, who are just operating in commerce, they, they have cake stores or flower stores um, wanting uh, the right to uh, ignore anti-discrimination laws on the grounds that, for example, their religious belief isn't consistent with same-sex marriage, uh, and so we shouldn't have to sell a cake uh, to a same-sex couple. Uh, this means that the free exercise clause, which traditionally has been a kind of shield that you hoped would be protecting religious minorities, is now being turned into a sword that mm-hmm. is allowing religious, powerful religious uh, practitioners uh, to actually harm other people. And that, that's something that we haven't seen at all. And the court, uh, the Supreme Court will take up a case in the fall, uh, which will contemplate uh, getting rid of this rule we've had for a while, that if it's a law, of, if it's a general law, then everyone has to follow it in favor of a rule that provides special accommodations to religious practitioners who simply disagree, for example, with following anti-discrimination law. Can you imagine in the 1960s when we passed civil rights acts Mm -hmm. that we would have allowed people to say, look, I understand that I'm supposed to uh, sell, um, you know, in my restaurant, I'm supposed to serve both blacks and whites, but my faith teaches me that the races should remain separate. And I, Uh I feel as though I don't have to abide by the civil rights act. It would have never been imaginable but right now it is imaginable, especially relating to the conflict between Christian conservatives on the one hand and the rights of uh, the LB- LGBTQ community on the other. You, you two aren't trying to imply that there's a lot of politics involved in people getting onto the D.C. circuit and other places uh, when, they, when they move forward. It's like an advertisement, um, like an advertisement. I, I, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do other things for you, right? <laughs> um, uh, one one other question. It's a very uh, good detailed question about this, something you bring up in your book. Uh, I don't think we've really covered it yet. Haven't the courts of late been equating businesses with individuals with respect to religious issues? When the origin of the religious clauses were about the individuals and the government and, and that businesses aren't players. Now, we've businesses have been called, uh, corporations have been called persons in other ways, and now they're being called in, in, in persons in, the, in a religion, which, as you point out in your book, seems re- ludicrous. What what kind of a religion does any business have? I, you, you look very eager to answer this, Erwin. Sure. The key case here was Hobby Lobby versus Burwell in 2014. It involved the owner of a corporation who said he shouldn't have to provide health insurance to women that includes contraceptive coverage. 
And the Supreme Court five to four ruled in favor of the owner of Hobby Lobby, saying that it would violate a federal law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to require him to do so. I have so many problems with this decision, starting with what you focused on. Mm-hmm. We've always thought that corporations are created to have a separate identity from the individual owners. So, for example, if a corporation incurs great debts, the owners aren't liable for them because the corporation is a separate entity. It can't be that the corporation is separate for that purpose, but just the alter ego of the owner for purpose of religion. Mm-hmm. A corporation is a fictional entity. A corporation can't have a conscience or religious beliefs. Now, in the area of speech, the Supreme Court has said, we give corporations the right to speak because the more speech there is in the marketplace of ideas, the better we all are, that it's Mm -hmm. instrumental. Um, It has no translation to a corporation when it comes to religion. And I think Mm -hmm. the courts made a huge mistake in allowing corporations to get a religious exemption from laws like this one that provided contraceptive coverage for women. Well, it's, uh, you know, I guess when corporations can either go to hell or heaven uh, after after they're uh, you know bankrupted, uh, then we'll find out whether they had a religion or not. Um, so let's we, we, we're going to close up here. Uh, a great discussion, but I thought one of the really interesting things to show in your book to show how difficult this is is that you you admire one uh, uh, one of the uh, legal theorists in this Douglas Laycock um, and and his point of view on a certain thing, but that even he couldn't can't you know he has a discrimination that's undoubtedly based upon uh his own personal beliefs or something that people can't get to the logic and to stay with the logic they 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 keep incorporating which is why uh, you're concerned about the accommodationist uh, viewpoint going forward so uh howard you want to explain douglas's point of view yes let me let me just say first of all uh Douglas Laycock is an extraordinary uh, scholar. He's written more about these issues, thought more about these issues than almost anyone else that we know. He, he, he's a person, by the way, that is simply, I, I think, primarily motivated, not necessarily by his own religious convictions, but mm. he sees how this issue is sort of tearing uh, at the fabric of the country. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's very willing to say, look, why don't we just give a little on both sides? And, and the, the, the main area where he says this is really in the area of, let's say, wedding vendors and uh, the issue of the expansion of rights of uh, same-sex couples and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe what needs to happen is that we'll give the LGBTQ community greater rights against um, discrimination. But since that makes some people mad, we're going to we're going to accommodate their willingness to say, yeah, don't, don't make me part of that, that structure. Mm-hmm. We simply disagree that that kind of a bargain is an appropriate bargain under these circumstances. He has even written uh, over the years that no one would have made a similar argument uh, with respect to the cause of black civil rights, even if some religious practitioners uh, objected uh, to the civil rights act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I, I think he's, He's a, he's a tremendous scholar. People can learn a lot from him. I, I think what he's trying to do uh, in his own mind is, uh, is a way of serving uh, the country and balancing mm-hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. But, our, but our view is simply that uh, that leads to, it's a terrible path. It leads to uh, you know, a terrible signal to members of the LGBTQ community who have fought so long and so hard for a sense of equal dignity within the political system. 
and that it's it's a price that shouldn't be paid. The, you know, religious practitioners can still pray that the country changes its mind. They can still uh, advocate uh, for a change in the laws, mm-hmm. but whether they should be given a free ride because they have strong views against it, um, we just think that that's a bridge too far. Yeah, the the, the argument that that the, the LGBTQ uh, couple can go to another service around the corner is sounds just the same as well you can go to a different lunch counter around the corner where you're being served and so it's very hard to draw that distinction um and i think you guys made that perfectly clear the distinctions are there as you said for for good practical purposes and, and you'd think okay well we can take this but um you also raised these uh, there's so many other issues in your book uh, i recommend highly um but it's also interesting to say that there's a moral imperative you said that, that people have to that, that somehow they can do certain things uh, that are against their religion um, because it's just a general rule and they're not really implicated in that. But, you know, people would argue about, you know, uh, people who operated the trains during the Holocaust and so on and so forth. You know, they're not being implicated in different in different actions. And so I think this is a this is an issue just like with with uh, Professor Laycock that's going to every, everyone finds their own personal uh you know, balance on this. Um, and that's when it's crucial to have good legal uh, distinctions, which you both laid out very well. So thank you very much for sharing that all with us, Howard and Irwin, and really appreciate the discussion. Um, and uh, anyone who wants the book, The Religion Clauses by Howard Gilman and Irwin Chemerinsky. And uh, thank you very much for listening. So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club and its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.